Hello and welcome to this episode of the Hired Geek Podcast, episode number 62 with Shade Abraham, a cohort member of mine from my master's program that I talked to uh, several weeks ago. Actually, I was kind of prepping some recording and editing and uh, scheduling out uh, episodes while I was going to be away on my uh, vacation with my wife to Europe, which was an amazing trip. Uh, we went to London, Brussels, and Amsterdam. Uh, nice to be able to unplug uh, my first international trip as well. Um, so it was an amazing time uh, celebrating my 30th birthday, uh, which was in May. So uh, yeah, just an all-around amazing time. Uh, so this uh, is kind of a backdated episode a little bit that I edited for this week. Um, so you will hear that uh, Shade mentions uh, Game of Thrones. I'm not sure how she feels about the finale. I know it was a little bit divisive for people, but um, she was enjoying uh, the final season at the time. Um, but yeah, I really appreciated talking with Shade about her uh, very unique kind of global journey uh, early now in her career uh, through higher ed, uh, working abroad in the Middle East, and then coming back to get a second master's and working at Harvard. Uh, she's done some really cool work and I uh, just really like trying to catch up with, uh, you know, cool people from my cohort. Of course, I think they're all amazing, and uh, I'm sure eventually we'll get to, uh, uh, to all of them. But um, yeah, so uh, kind of getting back to uh, recording some new episodes here in the next couple of weeks. So those will be a little bit more fresh for you, but um, still an amazing conversation here. Uh, episode number 62 with Shade Abraham. Yeah, just really appreciate you making time for the show here and for us to to catch up and to uh, kind of talk through uh, your uh, really interesting journey. Um, and yeah, we'll just start there. We'll start, uh, you know, as we always do with your introduction and your kind of professional journey so far and how you got to be where you are today. Sure. Well, thank you again for having me. Um, it was a blast going to grad school with you, and I'm really excited <laughs> that we were able to reconvene uh, for this as well. Um, so yeah, I think my professional journey, uh, I guess I guess has to start with the academic part of the journey. So I did undergrad in New York, psych major, did uh, my master's with you um, in uh, higher ed, college student affairs. Uh, and sometime during the second semester at Rutgers, we took a leadership class. I don't know if you remember this, mm -hmm. but took a leadership class. And um, I read Sheryl Sandberg's Lean In. And, you know, many folks have a critique that book for, you know, as, as a person of color, as a woman of color, they said that, you know, there's very little you can take from this <laughs> book because it has nothing to do with your identities, like you know, or some most of your identities. So um, as a low income woman of color, there was um, very, some would say that there was very little I could come connect with on that uh in that read but i found a lot to connect with actually um and it inspired me so much that i decided you know this is my time to lean in so my first professional job right out of grad school was outside of the country in the middle east in abu dhabi working for u.s institutions um abroad um and then spent three years in the middle east spent three years um two years in abu dhabi one year in dubai and then came back to do my cognitive neuroscience degree another master's at harvard and I continue to be there now. Well, somehow or another, you know, in asking questions and connecting with folks, I ended up working halfway through my program and I've continued to do that work in different capacities but supporting first generation low income students since mm. then. Very cool. Um, well, I think it's that, that point too that you made, like, it, I think that, like that lean in book, yeah, is like faced a fair amount of criticism, which I think is, <laughs> is fair. Like, and mm -hmm. It's just the idea that, like, I feel like I've mentioned it in different contexts than on the podcast before, but, like, 
honing in on any one individual or one thing to be like all things to be perfect and all that you know it's like this idea of like one book needing to be like perfect flawless advice that can like just you know apply to everybody it's like yes i think it could be a you know inspirational jumping point but yeah there's a lot of details that like certain people it's just not going to be relevant to them and and it's a high bar for anybody to like you know have to achieve in one writing or piece or anything you know to to be all things to all people it's Mm -hmm. possible because I feel like I read a lot of books that are sort of like startup-y books or like entrepreneurial. And it's like always, you know, just this like white guy who's like, yeah, I was working this like six-figure job for like five yeah. years. And I was just, you know what? I'm just going to like leave it all behind. It's like, yeah, because you right. probably had like a huge safety net and you probably came exactly. from money. And, you you know, so it's like right. not super applicable to most people to just be like, just, you know, just like leave and just, you know, whatever. You know? Um, exactly. So, yeah. Exactly. And I always think that like just take the meat and throw out the bone. That's what I, that was the, a strategy I had when I was reading the book. Yeah. Like I'm going to get yeah. what I can get out of this. And, you know, whatever else, you know, whatever. But um, I, it, I was happy that it did apply to me in many different ways and actually changed the trajectory of where I was thinking I was going to go next. So. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, I guess you can, you know, it's sort of like in grad school. And I guess I'm not sure, um, you know, we always ask people kind of about like their, you know, their origin story and like their, their college experience or just sort of wherever they might have had kind of you know, those like pivotal moments or crossroads or whatever you might want to call them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you mm-hmm. had that one in grad school and maybe if you want to explore that and talk about that a little bit more and, yeah. you know, maybe any or all, I guess, but just any of those experiences, because I feel like I remember you mentioning a lot, like your undergrad, obviously that for a lot of people, that's sort of what leads them into a career in higher ed is somehow mm-hmm. their experience with or around college, you know? So um, I guess, yeah, any of those things that kind of still resonate for you, whether it's from undergrad or, you know, the stuff that, you know, mm-hmm. happened in grad school, any of those things that come to mind, I guess, that are still personally and or professionally resonant for you? Yeah, certainly. So uh, starting off with undergrad, I went to a small state university in New York, you know, definitely not like top tier. I think it was a great experience. I think it was a perfect experience for me. But, you know, middle class folks who, you know, are really trying to train trajectories for themselves and their families. I didn't know all that then, right? You know, (laughs) but, you know, and I know that now. And it was a great experience because I think that, you know, for me now going to many, having experiences in many different institutions, research one institutions, you know, great schools as well. But I also think that when you're at the research one institution, a lot of times, professors, as we know, are, they're there, but they also are writing a book and they're also mm. on speaking tours and they're also, you know, and that's great. There's, and I think in grad school we talk about like, you know, the, the international scholar or the brand name scholar. Right. And then there's the local teacher, you know, and I went to school with the local teachers and I think that that was great because I, I think I got to see the craft of teaching done a hundred percent and done really, really well. And because of that, I was really inspired and I was also inspired by the folks that supported those students um, there, you know, like the higher ed thing as usual. You always, you didn't plan on it, but you end up getting roped in um, some way or another. And that was me, you know, I started working on campus and really it, t- it went from there. So I was the undergraduate director of student activities. I didn't even think there was supposed to be a job like that um, <laughs> when I was an undergrad and I really, you know, to went full into the uh, experience of working in student affairs. Um, but I will say in grad school at Rutgers, I didn't realize that this was going to be a, a theme throughout 
my entire academic journey from that point on. I thought it was just something I was interested in then. But we had a class about student development theory where we had to create our own theory. I don't know if you also uh-huh. recall this one. Um, yeah, and I did a theory on situational identity using Brock and Brenner's bioecological model. And I thought it was just cool then, you know, blah, blah, blah. But I realized that that's one of the foundations of my interest in some of the work I'm currently doing in student affairs. I'm fascinated by situational identities or multiple identities and the tensions that you hold when you have multiple identities that are seemingly incomparable, right? So at that point, I didn't know all of that. Um, I was just fascinated by code switching for certain populations of folks, you know, but now I see that in my work right now with first-generation low-income students in highly elite spaces, um, what that looks like to, to toggle between your roots and where you're going next. So working at Harvard, I see students who are, we're in the low, lowest 1% of the uh, income distribution in the United States, transition in the matter of four years to the top 1%, right? So yeah. what does that look like? Or at least have the tools to transition to the top 1%. What does that look like? What are the conversations that we're having with these students about that transition? Do we do enough of a job, <laughs> a good job, speaking about what that looks like for you? What are the ways of being? What are the um, you know, rules of engagement that are different? What are the ones that are the same? What are the things you should hold on to from your previous background? And what are the things you need to let go of, right? And I don't think we do enough justice to having those conversations with students. So that has resonated with me, just toggling identities and the difficulty and the tension that that creates for people, despite what your identities are, but just the, the tension in between that as you're navigating your personal, professional, and academic life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's good stuff. And I think yeah, just any of those like pieces for, you know, because I think whether it's, you know, something that somebody kind of, you know, identify with in terms of like that theory that you made as sort of like, oh, that really like captures because like you kind of made it for yourself. And that's kind of like your North right. Star of like how you really view your work. And I think whether it's something as specific as that or just like, because I, I can't even remember the theory that I made, but I feel like that yeah. it, it is that <laughs> idea of like, like creating your professional identity in higher ed you're yeah. kind of like you're remixing and mashing up and kind of creating like well this is how to you know how i kind of come at it and how i really try to work with students and you know i think exactly. it's you know as much as i think also there's a lot of criticism now for like kind of a saturation of you know everything requires a master even like entry-level work in higher mm-hmm. ed but like mm-hmm. yeah it still i think really helps you articulate the way that you work with students which you could certainly also mm-hmm develop as you're just doing the work but i think the professional programs certainly still have a place and if we just moderate it by like okay there doesn't need to be as as many programs or whatever it's all their topic but um right. <laughs> uh, yeah i think that's really interesting to me because i guess also when you uh came back stateside and yeah. i guess this kind of transitions into your current work too like mm-hmm. you know you decided to get a second master's and now you're really mm-hmm. i think digging into that work that you identified that you wanted to do and i guess i don't know if that, that was sort of furthered or cemented when you were uh, abroad. But I guess mm-hmm. talk about that, I guess, if, like you really are bringing this very like cognitive perspective to like your mm-hmm. higher ed work. So like, it's very complex. It's very kind of like, <laughs> I think nuanced. And obviously there's maybe not any one right answer. You're maybe just helping people to, you know, think about their thinking yeah. and those sort of things. So like, you know, maybe just, yeah, like transition us into your current work and what's keeping you like motivated and excited and like committed to this work that I think could be very like, you know, I don't know, like an idea that it's it's structured, but there's no like, you know, one right answer sort of thing. So like what, what's keeping you motivated mm-hmm. as you've like transitioned in this kind of unique work? Yeah. Um, so my research last year here at Harvard for my degree was 
focus on understand what I what I propose to Harvard, <laughs> my research is gonna be on, is understanding and unpacking how toxic stress, adversity, and trauma affect learning and development. And the context of that was poverty, essentially. So um, I was curious about what those experiences with food insecurity looked like 20 years later. I was curious about what stress looked like after struggling for X amount of years. What, how does that manifest in the brain? Um, and what, is, what are the implications of that for learning and development? So definitely was on a quest there. That was one of many questions. Um, but I, in some ways I got the answers, in some ways um, I haven't. I think when we finally got to that section in neuroscience, I was hyperventilating in class. Like the, the person next to me was like, are you okay? <laughs> like, you know, cause I had waited so long to like really delve into it and hear the truth. And, you know, having this, uh, having an understanding now of how it does affect learning and development and what to do with that information and who's responsible for holding that information and using it in a responsible way that doesn't turn into some problematic things we've seen in the past, you know? Mm -hmm. So if we know that like, you know, certain folks, are really having a difficult time, not just, you know, and there's like neurological implications to poverty. What do we do with that? You know, so in my current work right now, I think what when I came to that understanding, I sat, I was with my students and I'm working on projects. I was also working on the, uh, the program that we launched here at Harvard for first generation low income students. And I'm like, when do you tell students this information? One, neuroscience is always changing, right? So is this really true and how long will this be true for, you know? And two, does this help someone? Does this serve someone to say, hey, you got to Harvard, but you had almost insurmountable odds and you've been affected even to the neurological and cognitive level by your poverty, but you still push through through that. But that still means that you may need support, you know, and that some of the things that you think are like maybe just you when you're really stressed out. No, that there are good reasons for that. Does that help someone to push them further or does that debilitate someone? And I found a mixed bag with that. I've found students that have said, uh, yeah, can you never tell me that ever again? <laughs> you know, I just got here. I'm really excited about the idea of going through all these odds and making it here. I believe that I am equal to all of the folks that are in the classroom with me, and they are in many ways. I don't need to hear this type of stuff because it's going to mess up my performance. And others were like, this makes so much sense. I'm going to get the tools I need now that I'm aware of this to whatever extra support, whatever things I need to work through internally to be able to be in my peak performance because of the experiences of my past. So I don't bring it into my everyday to day in terms of like speaking to students about it because I think it's been jarring and there've been different responses. But, you know, Nadine Burke, um, she's the uh, uh, Surgeon General of California. She's done this work. I think she came once at Harvard as well. And she's talking about, you know, poverty and the effects of uh, toxic stress, trauma, and adversity. But the question is, what do you do with that on the ground level? And I keep it in the back of my head as I interact with my students, but what does that look like? And, and, and I guess in terms of programming, I try to implement things that will help and kind of give that to them in a way that doesn't overwhelm a student in their experience. Mm, interesting. Yeah, just like still continually like honing and sort of contouring, you know, the knowledge, like you're saying, it's like, I know yeah. these things, like, what do I do with it? It's like, yeah, I know, exactly. Yeah, you know, we've been granted this power of responsibility. Kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. And there's like a huge responsibility, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like it, and it wraps up into like, um, you know, like students experiencing like food insecurity and almost like right. those sort of things. It's like, if they're, if that's been part of their past or if that's what they're experiencing now and just identifying, obviously like there's a gap and a problem that, you know, can be solved, but then also just like 
understanding like you're saying like the impact that that's going to have on their like their their learning their kind of engagement or their their persistence or likelihood to do that just right. of like you know uh what they've had to go through to get to that point so it's yeah it's valuable knowledge and just like i think it can yeah certainly you know inform programming it can form policies or processes or just um yeah and yeah, I also realized I completely stuff, like, yeah. skipped your your question kind of in, in the, in the <laughs> workup. But like the motivation for that is that there are students who, despite the odds, on paper, this wouldn't shouldn't have happened, right? Mm. And they did it. Like, you know, so what does that mean? Like, you know, like how do we hold both and still say, like, wow, this was this person most likely should not be here? <laughs> like, you know, and they are kicking butt. So what do you do with that? Like, you know, and I think that that motivates me in my work that I'm going to make sure that as you go through this experience, every day, every problem set, every essay, every paper, that I'm giving you the tools, the, the, the most resources that you can have um, to get through this successfully and thrive, not just survive, but thrive in your experience. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah, I mean, just being inspired by their example, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. And you know, playing your small role, like small role, like whatever, like you said, it's just like whatever, yeah. you know, you can contribute to, you know, help them along in that. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, that's really good. Well, I think also perhaps what kind of resonated with me is knowing that you've really committed to, I think a lot of this like very kind of cerebral, thoughtful, like academic mm-hmm. work, of, you know, really having a full understanding of, you know, the landscape of what current college students are experiencing and coming into yeah. college with. So you know, I think it is, it's just properly geeky and nerdy. It's always something I appreciate of like kind of approaching this work is just like, you know, hitting the books and everything. So mm-hmm. I guess if there's, you know, things that are like professionally related that you've really been mm-hmm. connecting with or like personally that are like informing, you know, just you existing in the world as a human, but yes. um, yeah, like, what do you, what do you, what do you like, you know, like geeking out about right now? Like what's capturing your attention? If it's stuff like that you've discovered mm-hmm. recently or um, have always been into or mm-hmm. anything. I mean, yeah, so we can, we can dig in with different pieces and all that, yeah. but uh, yeah, like what are you geeking out about? Uh, let's see. What am I geeking out about? I'm geeking out about perfectionism and its maladaptive behaviors. I know that's like, mm. <laughs> but that's what I'm geeking out about right now. I'm um, geeking out about unrelenting standards and how that, control and perfectionism, how they're all linked and they show up in high achieving people. Um, so I recently did a presentation on that here um, at the Graduate School of Education for Women um, who identify as high achieving and how and, and also perfectionist. Um, I think there's so much research and so much work going on about that. And like, there's a current debate. I don't even know if it's still, but it's current, but there has been a debate on whether perfectionism can be uh, adaptive and there can be some type of good perfectionism. Some say that there's no way that it's possible. Others say that no, there, there are ways that this can push you to, you know, your, your best work. Right. So that's something that I'm really thinking about, especially in the context like Harvard, there are a lot of people who are perfectionists. There are a lot of high achieving students and there's a lot of um, (laughs) perfectionism there. So just wondering and, and, and unpacking what that looks like. Um, and I'm also geeking out right now, um, uh, about there's a, uh, kind of relates to what I was speaking about before. There's a book called uh, The Body Keeps Score. Um, and I think the the byline of that is like uh, the b- body, mind, and the brain, mind, and the body in the, in the healing of trauma. And again, that kind of goes directly into what I was speaking about. But what it looks like to, even if you think you've moved on, what are the remnants of that and how you move through the world? You know, so those are the two things that I really, um, and then on, a, on a lighter note, I love Strength Quest and I love, MBTIs. <laughs> so uh, 
assessments that, you know, some buy into, some don't. Uh, but how, even if they, I found that students, when I do presentations on both, they don't buy into, some people don't like believe in it, but then I always get a call or an email like six months later when they're about to do an interview and they're like, can you send me your scores again? Uh, <laughs> those scores again, uh, I have something, like, there were some insights in there that I thought would be really interesting about how do you articulate the things that you're good at? And like maybe you knew these things, but a lot of people, you didn't know how to word it in a way that would sound compelling in an interview and in a conversation. So, you know, they always come back around when it comes to those MBTI and ShedQuest assessments. So I'm a big fan of them. Yeah. Yeah, I've always been a fan as well. It's been a while since I've taken like strengths and stuff. And I think it, you yeah. know, it can like change, a, you know, over time and like maybe like what organization you're with or those sort of things. But right, right, yeah, right. just appreciating that like everything matters and just it gives you. Exactly. It was actually one of my like first blog posts I ever wrote was about all that stuff. Like, cause it was, it was really? grad school. Yeah. And it like, and it performed really well because I think it is like the way that I captured it was like, it was like the language of leadership because that's the idea. Like, especially yeah. when you're interviewing, it's just that idea of like, you know, how do you contribute to a team? And it's like, it doesn't matter what your answer is. You just need to be like clear and confident in what right, your answer right, is and the right. value that that has. And if you're has. foggy on what your own value add is, like, good luck with someone else. Cause like, I mean, some people may have a idea of it, but you should probably take some time to hone in and, and clarify what you're good at. Like, you know, not just have basic answers for that, but really dig deep on the things that you're talented at. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it really goes a long way. And I see that students really appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, yeah, and I think that, yeah, it's so interesting. Actually, another um, thing that I was writing on, cause it actually came as a recommendation from my, my wife of like um, mm -hmm. that idea of like, like nurturing high achieving students. Cause like, yes. I think in my world lately, like it's been a lot with like, you know, it's like online, uh, like mm -hmm. adult learners and these things. And it's just like, you know, these people are like working full time. They have families and like mm -hmm. typically we're perceiving like, okay, there's a lot of these students who are just struggling academically. So they're maybe not the, mm -hmm. not the high achieving student, but like mm -hmm. it can still take shape in the online space too, I think. But like it, so I guess it's not necessarily different, but just the idea of like generally, yeah, like nurturing high achieving students who, yeah, are like perfectionists and are like yeah. doing all the things and are, you know, like you're saying, like there is a like physical like toll, there's like an emotional toll, there's, yeah, yeah. there is a cost to all these things where it's like, wow, you're just like, you know, rocking on all cylinders, you're doing amazing, like, you know, yeah. performing well academically and all that, but it's like, still sort of reaching out to everybody and not only sort of following up and being reactive to like the at-risk triggers that students might have and those sort of things. Like yeah. that was sort of like what I was trying to get at with what I was writing was, you know, being kind of proactive and being mindful to be kind of inclusive to, to all students, even the ones who mm -hmm. might seem from the outside to not need additional support. Right, um, right. That they might need just a different kind of help to build like a healthier balance and habits and those sort of things. Um, exactly. And they always say like, you know, in, in student affairs, I'll, I, I don't know if they always say this, but I use this as a rule of thumb, but uh, to build with the most vulnerable amount, like put, put the most vulnerable, center the most vulnerable. And a lot of times you'll be able to check a lot of other boxes and that, that, that most vulnerable can shape shift given the context. But if you're, if you're thinking about those on the margins, as you are intentionally planning things, then you're already on the right track, you know? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, I guess on that, like, um, if there's anything that's kind of like top of mind and it can be just like fun stuff too, I get like anything yeah. like in both sides of the how kind of like stuff that you're doing, like kind of professional development thought or um, just like more entertainment wise, but like 
what are you like reading, watching, listening to? Like, what what are the things that you're um, yeah. connecting with lately? I don't know what what kind of like your kind of like pop culture diet or any of those things yeah, or what you have time yeah. for, I guess. But um, um, yeah, it's always cool to talk through any of those and like include them in the show. Okay, so yeah, this is this is when you're, people are going to start judging me probably uh, for several different reasons. So one, um, let's see, I really gotten into like. South African house. I don't know if anyone knows anything about that, but like Afro house is pretty awesome. Like I'm into house EDM in general, but like recently got down to the continent and like well, the African continent and and uh, South Africa in particular, and really been enjoying and jamming out to some of the great songs. There's a song called Akanamali. I don't know if it's uh, really fully in the house space but i this is my like song of the week recently um so that's been pretty cool um also i've been really i I, i'm nervous to say this because this is like a geeking out podcast and i feel like the folks that listen here and have a larger working knowledge than i do but i saw game of thrones last night no spoilers but (laughs) i'm geeking out over game of thrones and I watched everything else before, of course, but like that episode was just a masterpiece for so many reasons. Um, and a person that considers herself spiritual or like religious in some way, I saw a lot of like interesting undertones there in the in the narrative and the storytelling that I'm just really appreciative of. So I'm just really geeky. I, went, I, I love expert knowledge and I love when people do things with excellence in mind and the spirit of excellence. And I feel like that episode was done. Everything in Game of Thrones is pretty much done in the spirit of excellence, but yeah. they, they pushed it. <laughs> Last night, they definitely pushed it. So, And I'm talking about season episode, I think, two of the season, um, in case folks are wondering which one I'm just referring to. So yeah. that was something I'm geeky out about. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's just like solidified itself with a lot of those kind of episodes of just like, which I I have not kept up with it, but I want it like once yeah. it's all done, I will like sit through and just work through it at that my would own be pace. A treat. But, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It's like it's always going to be there, and that's the beauty. Of, certainly now, like entertainment is just like a library of all this like really awesome stuff that people have created is just there to enjoy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's like solidified itself as like a pretty seminal uh, kind of piece yeah. of certainly geek culture. Um, exactly. But then, yeah, like I've heard a lot of people talk, which is like nice because I, I kind of uh, that, that sort of aspect of it resonates with me as well. It's just like mm-hmm. kind of just like the hard work and the vision and just like the cinematography yeah. that goes into like yeah. creating these things. So, um, yeah, it's definitely like beautifully done. And it's, you know, you can really see, I think, a lot of people's hard work and a lot of like money and hours have gone into this and it shows. Um, yeah, so, absolutely. Um, absolutely. So, yeah. yeah. And then that, that's pretty much what I get. And learning how to cook. So, yeah. Well, I guess, do you listen to that music? Like, is that sort of like your focus music or is that just like your kind of like pressure mm. release kind of thing? Like, because I listen yeah. to podcasts usually as like, if, if I am like cooking or laundry or watching dishes or yeah. whatever, but then like, yeah, I just listen to like very easy, like lo-fi music when I'm like trying to get yeah. work done and stuff. So, um, I don't know where it falls for you. I, I think, uh, yeah, I think I, I use it in very different spaces, but it's definitely like a social soundtrack for me in the background when you're hanging out or something like that. Very like light music. Mm. Um, but I can also see it like on a stressful day, really changing like the, the tenor of how I'm feeling. Um, and I, I realized that I really aligned very quickly, more faster than I expected with EDM and house music and the undertones of that because um, soca is a, a song of genre of my culture. I'm, I was born in Trinidad, and it marries very well with EDM. In fact, it's like <laughs> I see now that there are DJs that mash them together very because it's very hype, positive, upbeat music um, with very like positive themes to them as well. So I think they just go really well. So it was a quick transition 
from one to another. So I think I, just my love of soca has transferred into a, a, this this new genre. And I say new, but I, I've been kind of jamming out for like two, three years. But like the Afro house is the new territory for me. So I'm, I'm a big fan of like Black Coffee and there's some other great um, DJs that folks would check out there. So yeah. and, and like, I guess everything is on Spotify. Usually, like do you usually listen to yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. I'm like old fashioned too. So I kind of YouTubing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, YouTube is also a great spot for that. So, but I've been uh, between Spotify and, um, and YouTube. And it's like, it's also the soundtrack in some ways of Dubai and Abu Dhabi. Like I, hmm. my uh, EDM house and Afro house, love kind of was like solidified there because like pretty much wherever you go you'll hear some of that in the background so it just happens naturally interesting um yeah. no and that's good yeah i mean um and, and like youtube i feel like is like also like trying to lean in to be like the music platform now because like yeah. people, people do use it so much for that so it's just like all right let's yeah. just embrace it um no shade to like uh what's it called pandora i hope they're not one of your sponsors or something no, but like no, no, no. <laughs> like wow i feel bad for like Folks like that, they had like the, the recipe for success. I almost equate Pandora to like the Chipotle of music. Like you had the recipe for success and like something went wrong. Mm. Like what happened? And like they're like struggling to kind of like, you know, get to where the Spotify's of the world are. But I guess that's what it is. And you know, fast pacing, fast paced worlds of innovation and entrepreneurship um, to have to evolve quickly. You know, what is the saying? Like move fast and break things. Like I guess mm. that's the way you need to do. You know, but I, I always think about those two organizations, like Chipotle and um, <laughs> and, and uh, Pandora. Is like, what happened? Like, you know, you yeah. had it all right. And the idea um, that, yeah, like, it's, I think they've solidified enough to just like they'll just be around. But yeah, they've sort of lost yeah. that like kind of panache, or you know, that sort of like exactly. Yeah. But like, what, they were they were right online. Like, I mean, that's always what scares me about investments because like that would have been two places I would have heavily invested. In, you know, and it's like, ooh. Yeah. It's like know. at the time, it's like they're never going away. Like they're like, exactly. they're, yeah. they're like, nope, they, they're they're gone. Like yeah, not yeah. extinct, but you know. Yeah. So well, yeah, it's like, they're, yeah, they're, they're still around, but not as valuable. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, right. Great place. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's interesting. Well, I guess it, before we get to our final question, I, I, I almost want to ask about that specifically. Like, is there anything else that you feel like specifically like? Because I feel like you living abroad for several years, yeah. like in a very culturally different place, like mm-hmm. what other pieces do you feel like are like the most kind of cherished moments or memories or things that mm. like still resonate with you? Like, obviously, it's like sometimes simple stuff of just like, because I think for me, it's not nearly a close parallel, but like yeah. I lived in Maine for two years and they have a lot of craft beer there. And it's like, that's yeah, why I yeah. like, it's just like wherever you live, like you kind of probably take right, something right, where it's like, right, oh, right. like I really got a flavor for this food or something, you know. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, like anything oh. else that kind of resonates from like that time. That's a know? great question. Um, anyone that knows me knows I love the UAE. You would think I was born and bred there. Like I love Trinidad, I love New York too. But there's that has been a, I consider that home in some ways to me. Um, and I equate Abu Dhabi to Queens, New York. If anyone has been there, and Dubai to like Manhattan. So like very different pace, but like both beautiful in different ways. Um, but I will say my experience. Some of the things that resonate for me was one coming from a place like New York, where I grew up on the New York. Like not on the New York subway system. Like I'm like traveling the New York City subway system and going to high school in Manhattan and you know always having my senses aware of things and ready for something to happen and being really responsive and being that way and going into my experience in the Middle East like that, it, it didn't even it didn't fit at all because it was very different in mm. terms of 
the levels of safety, the things I would have to worry about. Like, so in the beginning, I was very guarded. By the end of my three years, it's like you could leave your purse or bag in one aisle of the grocery store, walk to the other if you forgot your cheese and come back. Like, you know, um, I've lost my phone in taxis after a fun brunch, you know, (laughs) and the taxi driver would call, find a way to drop it back to me. You know, like that's unheard of, like, you know, and it's, it just, it really changed the way I, I see where I want my children to grow up, the type of spaces. Like, yes, there's cool to have that street smarts and that savvy, but it's all another thing to like, just not be so worried about things all the time. Um, and just also the pace with, with that, like with work and like, for example, we would have a conference or like a, a session, NASPA would even has an international conference there. It's called uh, the MENA conference, um, Middle East and North Africa conference for NASPA. And, you know, great conference, but like even the pace of that, like, you know, you get some coffee or some tea, you chat with your colleague, the lunch is a longer, more leisurely experience. Like, you know, it's time to really connect with folks. And it drove me crazy when I first got there. But by the end, I really appreciated that I was able to like shift gears in terms of the pace of life. And now, even though that was my first professional experience, I think the way I conceptualize work-life balance is forever tarnished. Mm. <laughs> so it's great in some ways, but what does that mean for me? Is that like afternoons on the weekdays, we would go hang out at the beach in the afternoons, like, you know, watch the sunset. Like, what does that look like in this context to be able to cultivate the work-life balance that I, I kind of cut my teeth on? So that's something I'm really thinking about. And like, are there spaces in the US that can offer me that same lifestyle? Some would say Cali, like, you know? Um, mm-hmm. But I'm just really thinking about that in terms of, if that is a value of mine now, where do I find that again? Or is that something I just need to like let go of in this professional, in this early to mid-stage professional career and hope for the best in my later stages? So right. those are the things I, I think about when I think about um, Abu Dhabi and Dubai. Just great, great cities. And, and I would definitely encourage anyone that hasn't had a chance to visit. Yeah. No, that's great though. Yeah, and I think just the like the open-mindedness or it's not as if you went into the spaces being like, oh, this is like the wrong way to be in my ways. Right, right, you know, right. And it's like, you probably would not have like really survived very long because it would just been this friction. Yeah, but like, exactly. Yeah, and you went in and sort of, you know, yeah, like it, it something kind of stuck with you sort of thing. And um, it still sort of, you know, sits in your heart and kind of resonates as you sort of exist in other spaces as well. But um, yeah, no, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, it's fascinating. Um well, I guess then we will uh, end on the optimistic note that I like to wrap things up with. So, yeah. you know, with your, you know, amazing journey and kind of unique journey through different, uh, you know, facets of higher ed. And uh, mm-hmm. as you look ahead to the future, what are things that you are looking forward to in your job, life and or the world? So kind of any of those or all of those, just oh. anything that you're looking forward to. I'm looking forward to it. I'll say my professional life. I'm looking forward to consistency. I've like been up and down, back and forth, international, national, you know, like in, mm-hmm. in domestic. Um, and uh, really excited about like landing in a role or continuing a role where I can like reuse the emails from last year and like, you know, and uh, have a template for something. Cause I've been really on the go and transitioning and I'm grateful for the, the jungle gym of professional life that I've been on um, and the flexibility to do so. But I'm also ready for some consistency where I can pull up the like event I did last year and use the same template. <laughs> like, you know, that has not been a hallmark of my experience. Um, I've been shifting and changing and I, I would love to be in a place where I can have that order and that consistency. Um, and in general, um, and this is really corny and cliche, but 
it's graduates around graduation time, right? So I'm excited for some of the people, the students here at Harvard, at Rutgers, you know, my undergrad or Westbury. I'm excited for NYU and Abu Dhabi. I'm excited for the students that I've seen push through the difficulties of undergrad or grad school or the PhD process. And like, this is an exciting time of year where all that work is realized and actualized. Um, and you get to see the return on investment. And I, I think, or begin to see the return on investment. And I think this is just like Sunday time, May's around the corner. Um, and I'm really excited about celebrating here and like internationally with all those that have come through and pushed for themselves, their families, their communities and their trajectories um, to just do better for themselves. So, yeah. Yeah. It is a beautiful time of year for many reasons, yep. like literally the weather, but then also, yeah, just like. Yes. And I know lo- it's really corny and cliche, yeah. but I, I actually mean it. <laughs> no, yeah, it's it's good stuff. I mean, yeah, it's like if you needed that little like shot in the arm of just like joy, it's just seeing all these people yeah. who would say it's like they put in so much work and, you know, especially people who are, you know, the first in their family or just, exactly. you know. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a beautiful thing. And I think uh, anybody who works in higher ed, I think it. Like it never gets old kind of thing, you know, like I hope it doesn't. (laughs) Um, Right, right, right. (laughs) So, um, Perfect. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I appreciate all that you shared. I appreciate you making time for the show and uh, uh, great catching up with you and everything. So, yeah, thank you so much again and uh, just have a good rest of your day. Thank you so much, Justin. I appreciate it. Have a great day, too. This podcast is part of the Connect EDU podcast network, bringing together diverse voices in the higher ed community. Check us out on Twitter at ConnectEDUPod or at ConnectEDU.network. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode of the Higher Ed Geek Podcast.